Well, there's an old saying that's very true. They say to start with the end in mind. The meaning, picture where you want to end up, right? You need to picture where you want to go, your goal, before you start going. And, and once you're going, you keep your mind set and your focus on that goal. Imagine if uh, Len and Dave Baxter built a house with no clue as to what it would look like in the end, right? Imagine if you're driving and you didn't have a destination in mind. There are many people around here that drive like that all the time. <laughs> what, what about us as Christians? What is our end goal? What's the end of our lives? What, what, what are we going for here? And how do we live now in light of what our end will be? And scripture is clear, and especially in our passage today, but throughout all scripture, the end of our time here will culminate as we all, every single one of us, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so how do we live now in light of that day? Paul is going to answer all of that for us and more. So if you're not there already, where John read for us in Romans 2, we made it to chapter 2. We only got 14 more to go, church. We did it, everybody. Last week, we dug into the light and fluffy and super non-controversial topic of homosexuality. We learned that there are consequences to rejecting God and being turned over to our sin. We said that rejecting God warps our sexuality and rejecting God warps our thinking. And ultimately, rejecting God turns a life upside down and only Jesus can recenter it. This week... In chapter 2, we break into new ground a little bit. In chapter 1, Paul had primarily been targeting the Gentiles and how they knowingly rejected the truth of God's existence, right? Despite everything that's outside that is true and good, the Gentiles rejected that and pushed it down. In chapter 2, Paul targets his own brothers. He targets the Jews. And the Jews and the Gentiles, they didn't exactly get along. They're, come, they come, they're coming from two entirely different worldviews, two entirely different perspectives. The Jews were the original people of God. They had the law. They had the promised land. They had the temple. They had the priests. They had the presence of God, all of that. But God's plan of redemption was always supposed to be global. And many of the failings of Israel was they made it all about themselves. God's plan was to bless all peoples of the earth through Israel, through the one who had come through Israel, through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And to all who come to him by faith would be as much of a child of God as anyone from the nation of Israel. That was the plan. And along with that, you might think that it would be a very big temptation for someone uh, as a Jew to maybe think they're special, to maybe look down on other people, Right? I know, it's not that bad. It's going to get better, I promise. <laughs> you, might, you might think that they might be tempted to look down on someone, especially a, a Gentile believer. Like, imagining, imagine living your whole life where you memorized the Torah, where you, where you went to the temple, where you did all of these things, where you obeyed the food laws, where you did all of this. You were God's special chosen nation. And now the Messiah has come, and now by faith, a Gentile, is just as much of a child of God as you are. Don't you think that'd be a little bit of a tough pill to swallow? Don't you think you might be tempted to look down sinfully on them? And that's exactly what's happening here in Romans 2. Let's look again at Romans 2 and verse 1. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Okay, Paul, calm down a little bit there, Paul. Okay, look, look at verse 1. Let's backtrack here. You may have noticed in chapter 1, Paul was using a lot of they, a lot of them. He's talking to them and the Gentiles. But now he comes out swinging. Now he's talking to you. He changes it. He says, you. Some commentators have noticed that this is what's called a, a diatribe or a rant. He's going after some group in particular, and we can see immediately why. Paul is going after those who are judging others, but specifically Jews who are judging Gentiles for doing the very same things that the Jews themselves do. Right? Paul says that they are without excuse. Same word in the Greek from 1 verse 20, meaning no apologetic, no defense. If you're rolling King James this morning, it says, Thou art inexcusable. What is so inexcusable? It's inexcusable to judge someone for doing the very same thing that you're doing. To call something a sin that you are doing. What is in view here is the sins that we went over last week in chapter 1 from verse 26 to 32. Like, use that as your laundry list of sins. So picture, if you are then judging someone for all of those sins, for, for sexual sins, unrighteousness, covetousness, malice, envy, gossiping, all of that and more, and then you go and do the very same things, Paul says that is inexcusable. You see, maybe the Jews were fine with God raining down holy wrath on the Gentiles for doing those things. Right? But the problem is that they're ignoring the very fact that they themselves sin in the very same ways. And they somehow think that maybe they will escape the judgment of God. That is the textbook definition of a hypocrite. Right? Someone who says one thing but lives the opposite way. And Paul goes right after them for it. And they, he has very good reason to be upset. Look again in our text. Chapter uh, 2, verse 2, pick it up. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he says, do you suppose then that you who judge, who practice the, those same things, right, and do them for yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? There's a little bit of a, a change here in, in verse 2. He says, we, we know, identifying himself with his brothers, the Jewish brothers, the Jewish believers. We know about God's wrath. We know all about it from, from the Old Testament. We know that God's judgment is rightly coming on those who continue in sin. Uh, uh, Israel experienced it themselves. We know God's judgment comes. We've seen it ourselves. But do you think then that you're immune from that judgment? Like you know it's coming, but do you think then you're immune somehow from that judgment? One study Bible said that this way, Paul unmasks those who agree with his exposition of divine wrath on sin, but assume that they're immune to it. It's a great word, unmasks, because that's exactly what the word hypocrite means in the Greek. It means you, you put a mask on, ideally to perform in a play or something like that. You're, you, but un, behind that mask, right, you're just who you are. Paul takes the mask off. He says, you guys, it's inexcusable. You're, you're judging them for doing the same thing that you are. You are a hypocrite. 
He fires off this rhetorical question. Do you think you will escape judgment? And the unspoken answer is, of course not. You will not escape judgment. God judges sin. God judges all sin. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture from cover to cover. God is the judge, and God will judge. In our men's leadership group this month, we read through the classic work, Knowing God, by J.I. Packer. And he has a chapter called God is the Judge. And he writes, The reality of divine judgment as fact is set forth on page after page of biblical history. It is indeed a biblical fact, and God is right in his judging. Notice verse 2 says, as a fact, we know that God's judgment rightfully falls. According to truth, it rightfully falls on those who sin in such ways. God is the perfect judge. He never judges incorrectly. He always judges perfectly correctly. When he judges something, it's always in accordance with truth. He never gets it wrong. How about us? Do we ever get it wrong when we judge? Absolutely, totally, yes. We frequently make incorrect or incharitable or uncharitable judgments. So if we're going to get it wrong, that should mean then that we should never judge. We should never judge someone. Isn't that right? I mean, that's the world's favorite Bible verse, right? Everybody knows that Bible verse, thou shalt not judge. It's funny how they roll off quick King James all of a sudden. Thou shalt not judge. You can't judge me. Again, anytime we make any kind of judgment on any person at all, this comes out like a hand grenade. You cannot judge me. And they throw out the Bible verse that they know. Even sometimes from fellow Christians, right? Okay, fine. But if we were to read again in Matthew 7 where that comes from, the famous thou shalt not judge, Matthew 7 in verse 1, judge not that you be judged, Watch this. For, because, this is Jesus speaking, with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So if, if we put these two passages together, where we are in Romans and where we are in Matthew 7, what is Paul ranting about? He's not ranting about judging in and of itself. He's ranting about incorrect judging. He's ranting about sinful judging. He's ranting specifically about hypocritical judging, not judging in and of itself. Later on, Jesus himself in John 7, 24 says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See that? If you ever get the old judge not hand grenade, a good place to go then is John 7, 24. says, well, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to judge. We're supposed to judge correctly. We're supposed to judge biblically. We're supposed to judge humbly and never hypocritically. And Jesus says, be careful in Matthew 7. Don't judge someone incorrectly. Having one standard for yourself and then another standard for someone else, that's an incorrect way to judge. Don't judge that way because how would you like it if somebody did that to you? So maybe I'll say the first point this way. We are to judge with humility, not hypocrisy. We're to judge with humility, not hypocrisy. If you have ever been judged by someone who does the very same thing that they are judging you for, doesn't that just burn you up more than anything else? That's like one of those things where it's like, really? It's sinful. It's hypocritical. This is not a prohibition against making judgments. Case in point, you are judging right now whether or not what I said is true. 
You got up this morning and you judged when you looked in the mirror if you looked better or worse than the day before. You judged whether or not your coffee this morning was too hot or how good it was. You judged whether or not your kids were moving too slow in order to be late for church or not. You judged whether or not you liked the worship songs this morning. And hopefully you are judging right now if the sermon is biblical or not biblical. You're judging me for my hair and for my shirt. I understand that. You make judgment calls on who to marry. Where you, wasn't that funny? Where you're going to live. You make judgment calls on where you're going to live, what job you're going to take, how many kids to have. We make judgments on what is right or what is wrong or what is good and what is not good. The point, which you get already that I've beaten into the ground, is we all make judgments all day long. It's a decision. It's a discernment issue. But yet judgment is like so negative because people feel personally judged. We are not prohibited for making judgments. In fact, we have to make judgments. But there's a real big biblical, biblical instruction in this. One thing we're not to do is judge non-Christians the same way that we would judge Christians. You guys get that? We're not to judge non-Christians the same way we judge Christians. Why, would we, why, why is that true? Because a non-Christian is not claiming to live by the standard of a Christian. So why would we judge them by a standard that they're not claiming to adhere to? Paul talks about this famously and very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5. There was a ridiculously sinful situation going on in the church. It was a sexual sin. It was a horrific sexual sin. And Paul's writing to the church to tell them, listen, you have to judge this guy. You've got to excommunicate this guy. You can't let this go on. But he clarifies in that passage how we judge and how we don't judge. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? He's talking about those outside the faith. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from your midst. So Paul says, listen, of course the world is going to sexually sin. Of course the world is going to be drunkards and swindlers and all of that stuff. They don't know any better. They're adhering to the sin that's in their hearts. So don't judge them the same way that you would judge a Christian. But if somebody calls himself a Christian, then he says, yes, I am adhering to the standards here that God has given me. And so therefore, yes, Paul says you absolutely need to judge someone. And we judge what is sinful, what is not sinful, what is wise, what is not wise. All of that within the body of Christ. In the church, Whatever the sin is, whether it's idolatry, drunkenness, cheating, you need to call it sin. We need to call sin, sin. We need to make a judgment that it is sin, and we need to deal with it. That's the whole process of church discipline that God gives us in his word. We go to somebody one-on-one, -on -one and then we continue to work through that problem, involving others as necessary. But we're to do it 
humbly, not hypocritically. Do you see how this is the opposite of just looking the other way? Sometimes we're tempted to do that, right? We see someone sinning or we see something where we're not sure, and then we say, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything. Who am I to judge? Right? That's not a biblical attitude, church, when we're talking about each other. Right? Who, who am I to judge? I said, well, I'm just as much of a sinner as, as they are. I really don't have any, any ground to stand on. Neither of these are biblical responses. So how are we to judge? We can't spend a lot of time on how to judge. But just to answer the question in application, we need to judge without hypocrisy. I mean, cookies on the bottom shelf here. We can't be judging someone for a sin that we have the same sin. Right? We need to then what? First deal with our own sin before we go and judge someone else's sin. And you might be thinking back to Matthew chapter 7, which is exactly where Jesus will bounce back. I should have had you keep your finger in Matthew 7. Let's look at it again. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you might not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, of your eye, when there is a log in your eye. You hypocrite, is our word. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Did you catch that? We still have to take the speck out of our brother's eye. We still have to judge. But we got to get the log out of our own eye first. right? Just because I love you guys, I, I painstakingly drew a picture of this this week to show you. So... <laughs> The guy on the, the right, for the, the people in the lobby there, in the, in the red, in the, in, the guy in the red says, dude, I, have, I think I have something in my eye. And the guy on the right says, hey, don't worry, I'll help you get it out. And of course, he's got a, a, a two by six or something sticking out of his head. Right? I mean, it's, it's a funny thing. Right? We, we think about that. But we must realize that that's what it's like. How ridiculous would that be? Right? You would be, you would be, you'd be hurt. You'd be slamming that person in the head, trying to take a little speck of sawdust out of their eye with your giant beam that's sticking out of your own eye. First, in humility, confession, repentance, take the log that is out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the tiny speck. We've got to spend time in private heart searching with an open Bible right here, because this is our standard. There might be things that bother us, that we want to go speck hunting, that aren't sins, right? We need to talk about what's a sin. So we have to use biblical language, and we need to spend time in private heart searching with an open Bible. We confess our sin to God. We ask for his forgiveness, and then we go to talk to somebody else about judging their sin, and we ask questions. We don't start with accusatory statements. We ask questions. And we say, listen, I've been struggling with this sin, and I asked the Lord for forgiveness, and I'm really trying to repent and grow through that sin. And I know that that contributes maybe to whatever situation is going on with us. But, but I saw this the other day, and it looked like this. Insert passage here, right? It looked like this. Can you help me understand that? Can, can we talk about that? Is that what this was? 
And then hopefully you can start a discussion. And hopefully, as Matthew 18 says, right, that you will win your brother back. That's where it's supposed to end, right there. That's ideally what's supposed to be happening a lot. It should be happening a lot in marriages. It should be happening a lot in, in the membership of this church. People should be going to one another and saying, I saw this. Was that true? Is that what it was? Yes, it was. Please forgive me. I repent. End of story. We're done. Right? But you've got you to gotta judge in order to get there. And you need to judge humbly, with humility, not with hypocrisy. Church, we have to judge others in the church. But we have to deal with our own sin first. And so we judge with humility, not hypocrisy. Because if we make the error, like Paul's Jewish friends here are making the error, that we think we will get away with our sin, but God will zap the other person for their sin, that's a complete mistake and a very serious mistake. Look back in our main passage in Romans 2 at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul continues his diatribe with a second rhetorical question. Hey, uh, Mr. Judgey Judgerton, uh, what's your deal here? Like, do you, do you think, do you presume, or better yet in the Greek, do you despise God's mercy? Do you think so little? Do you have such little regard for God's mercy that you think he won't judge you? Every time we sin, church, the fact that God doesn't zap us into a smoldering pile of ash is a miracle of his grace. But what happens, right? We sin, and we're like, nothing happened. I'm okay. What should happen is we should repent and be softened in our heart, right? That, wow, God didn't actually judge me right then and there, right? I need to actually repent and change, because he will. But no, what instead happens is then we get emboldened in our sin. Oh, maybe I'll do it again. Maybe I'll do it again. Maybe I'll keep going. Because then maybe we fall into the lie of maybe God doesn't see it. Maybe, maybe, he doesn't, maybe sin's not that big a deal to him. Maybe he's, he's not going to judge me. So we keep going. And Paul says, guess what? As you keep going, you're just hardening your heart and you're storing up more and more wrath for yourself on the day when God's wrath will be revealed. It is a huge misunderstanding that God's kindness is not God's weakness. God's kindness is actually meant to lead us to, as Paul says, repentance. And again, instead of softening our hearts in repentance, sometimes we harden our hearts in sin, and we boldly continue to sin more. And so the net effect is that instead of God forgiving you when you repent, then you're only earning and storing up more wrath for you on the day of judgment. And then we become more emboldened in our sin, and we become more blind to other people's sins, and we have calluses and hardening of heart, and then guess what? We see someone else's sin, and we want to talk about their sin. But all the while, what's going on here? Our big, cold, hardened heart is happening. Right? We've got to remember that. There's a day coming, church. This is where all this goes. And those who have been at midweek these last couple weeks, the brave soldiers who have been at midweek these last couple weeks, where we've been going through the minor prophets, right? Where it's just like, 
week after week after week of like, the day of the Lord is coming, you're all going to die. Thanks for coming to midweek. Appreciate it, right? And then we get next week, and it's like, the day of the Lord is coming. He's really angry. You're all going to die, right? It's just like minor prophet after minor prophet telling Israel, you will be judged for your sin. Repent, and they don't repent, right? There is a day of the Lord coming, a day of judgment. And Christians, there is a day coming. And we need to continue in repentance, not in hardening our hearts, because we're only storing ourselves uh, storing wrath up for ourselves on that day when it inevitably happens. And so second point, I'll say it this way. God will judge everyone inevitably. God will judge everyone inevitably. Scripture is clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is the only judge, and he will judge everyone inevitably. Ecclesiastes says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Elsewhere, in the second letter to the Corinthians, we already read from the first one, but the second letter, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Later on, in Romans itself, in the letter that Paul writes to Romans, in Romans 14, 10, he says, why, again, with regard to judging others, why do you pass judgment on each other? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. From cover to cover, the Bible says, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Bible says that God will inevitably judge everyone. It's the culmination of human history. That's where we're all going to end up. We're all going to end up right at the judgment seat of Christ. This is where he will separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the wicked, Christians from non-Christians. And so that brings up a very important question that, once again, is rather poignantly phrased by Dr. Packer. And he says this, The entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of the coming day of judgment. And the problem thence, I told you it was poignant, the problem thence arising, how may we sinners get right with God while there is still yet time? That's the big question. And the answer to that, I hope you know, is that we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for the forgiveness of our sins. That is what we need to do before judgment. And if you've not done that today, today's your day. Think about that. I urge you to do that today. There is a day of judgment coming. So in order to escape that judgment and be forgiven of your sins, you need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for forgiveness of your sins. But what about us, church? Because I can tell by the question marks over some of your heads. What about us? Are we going to be judged for our sins? Are we going to be judged? Because it sounds like that's where you're, you're headed. And I would say this way. We'll answer that question. Don't worry. Would our lives look differently, Christians, if we made every decision in light of the fact that we will stand before God in judgment one day? How would our lives look differently if we made our decisions based on the fact that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? It's the end of the story. And Paul says that they, that day is most certainly coming and we should be living our lives in the light of God's future judgment. In the context of this passage, right, it has very specific application 
to how we judge others. So what does it say about how we think of the riches of God's kindness if we judge others unkindly? What does it say about how we view God's forbearance of our sin if we want to be quick to judge others harshly for doing the very same sins? What does it say about how much we want to cherish God's patience if we have very little patience for other people's sins and want to rush to judgment? There are two and only two eternal options as a result of God's judgment on that day, and that's where Paul goes next. Look again in Romans 2 and verse 6. He will render each, or each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Notice again how factually Paul speaks of God's inevitable judgment. It's happening. He will render. He will repay. It's going to happen. According to our works, we will each be repaid. We will be judged. And this truth should be both a comfort to us and a sobering concern. The truth that God will render judgment should be both a comfort to us and a sobering truth. It should be a comfort to us because we know from God's word then, if everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, evil is getting away with nothing. We know that. If you've been sinned against in big ways, if you've experienced trauma, if you've experienced something, some horrific sin done to you and that's not been resolved, it will be resolved. Evil will get away with nothing. Sometimes we turn on the news and it looks dark and it looks bleak and we wonder, is evil winning? No, evil's not winning. Evil will not get away with anything because everyone will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will be judged perfectly. And so that's the comfort part. But the, the sobering truth part, right? The sobering truth part is that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that Christians, again, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as well. Here's the thing. We will not be judged for our sin, per se. Why? Because that was on the cross, right? God poured out all of his wrath on our son, or his son, Jesus Christ, for our sins, right? Nobody was alive when Jesus was on the cross. Think about it this way. So all of your sins were future sins. And God took one look at you and said, yep, I'm buying their soul with my blood. All of them, all of their sins, all of it, I'm going to forgive all of it with my blood. And so we're reminded of that fact that, that our sin, as far as the wrath of God for sin, is gone. And it is fully propitiated, fully satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross. But that does not mean that we will not be judged, which we will be judged, for what we did with the new life that God gave us. How did you live your life? We're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, what did you do with the life that I gave you? How did you spend it for my glory? Everyone's lives will be judged. And he says, Paul says in 
Romans 2. To those who by patience and perseverance in good works are seeking glory, honor, and immortality, they will receive eternal life. But to those who are seeking and refuse to obey God's law, there will be wrath and fury. If that wasn't enough, Paul modifies what he just said and repeats himself later, secondly, in, in these verses that are upcoming, and repeats the order. He says, to those who are doing evil, there will be tribulation. But for those who are doing good, there will be glory, honor, and peace. And just to be clear, that his diatribe is pointed predominantly towards his Jewish brothers, he brings that familiar biblical saying, first to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. Why first to the Jews? Well, it's kind of like where we started, right? If anyone should know better about the wrath of God, if anyone should know better about God's judgment, if anyone should know better about how serious God is about his law, it should be the Jews. You guys should know better. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, you guys should know better. You're Israel. So this will apply to you first. They will be, they will be accountable for their knowledge. They know God. How much more then should they realize he will judge sin? But everyone will be judged. So he says also for the Greek. Greek meaning anyone else who's not Jewish. We have this powerful and beautiful truth that Paul says in verse 11. Why? Because God shows no partiality. There are no favorites with Jesus Christ, with God. There is no special treatment that anyone gets as a Christian or as a Jew or anyone else. This is the serious error of the Jews because that's exactly what they're saying. They're thinking, God won't judge us. Paul, come on. We're Israel here. We're God's chosen nation. He did all these things for us. Judgment's not coming for us. And it did, and they forgot that it did, but it will come again. Surely he will cut us some slack. No, there's no slack. There's no partiality with God. There's no favoritism with God. And so I'll say the third point this way. God will judge everyone accordingly. God will judge everyone accordingly. My first draft to that point, I said God will judge everyone equally, but that's not really true. That's a different reason. God will judge everyone accordingly. Who they are, what they've done, perfectly. But there's differences in, in judging. God, James 3, for example, tells us that teachers will be judged more strictly because of the responsibility that we have. I'm preaching God's word. I had better make sure that what I preach is true and accurate or I will be judged more strictly in that. Next week, we'll see that all of us will be held responsible in some way because we have God's law written on our hearts. It's not just what's outside that's creation that points to God. We all have morality. We all have right and wrong stamped on our hearts, and we will be responsible for that. We recall a few weeks ago in chapter 1 where no one will have a valid excuse to say they couldn't believe in God because of a lack of evidence. They will be judged for that. But what about us again, church? What about us? How much have we been given? In the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required from him. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. What about us, church? What about us who have heard and received and obeyed the gospel? Yes, we will be held accountable for that. Second Peter 2 tells us, in verses 20 and 21. 
Or if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Christians, this should scare us. This should cause us concern. You will be responsible for what you have heard and learned in the gospel if you then turn back to sin and live a life of sin, right? Because you know better. Why? You're responsible. God will judge you accordingly. You have heard it. And so that's a burden on the hearer, right? Every week, hopefully, I preach the gospel. You'll be held responsible for that on judgment day. What did you do with that gospel that you heard? Because I know you heard it. Hopefully you heard it every week. It is not the realm of application, or not far, I'm sorry, out of the realm of application to say this from our passage. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. First, the churchgoer. And second, anyone else. Why? Because you guys are here. You guys hear it. You guys know you're responsible for what you're hearing and understanding, and then putting into action in our lives. And this passage, again, brings up the very important question that we're probably all asking in our heads. Well, hold up, this sounds a lot like salvation by works. And that's not the truth. That's not not what we're saying here. That's not the meaning of the passage. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And is that a contradiction, what Paul is saying here? No, absolutely not. And when we hit a question like that, right, we have to look at the rest of Scripture. We have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And it's the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament by the Apostle Paul himself that we are only saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved through faith, and that is the grace of God. It is a gift. We have to remember that. There's no scale in heaven when we get there. That that common misperception that when we get to heaven, there's a giant scale And you have your good deeds on one side and your bad deeds on the other. And hopefully the good deeds will outweigh the bad deeds and you can get access into heaven. There's no scale. There's no scale and we're not saved by works or how many good works we're doing. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's how we're saved. But Christians who will not be judged for our sin, therefore, because Jesus paid it all on the cross, non-Christians will be judged for their sin. The Christians will be judged for the quality of our lives, church. And that's where I'd like to look back at the text and help us land the plane here. If we look back in verse 7. Look look at verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Hopefully that's us. To those who present tense in the Greek by patience in doing, are continually seeking, continually striving, continually pushing, pressing. CSB has it as persisting. A better word may be even still persevering. To those who are persevering, that's who will receive the reward of eternal life. We're not doing it to be saved, but we're doing it for the judgment of how we will live then eternally through God's grace in eternal life. This is a lifestyle that reflects the state of our hearts. A heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel will continually preserve in good works. 
That's the, way that it, that's the way that it looks, right? If our hearts have actually been transformed by the gospel and we have new hearts, our lives will look like it. We will want to persevere in good and not evil, right? That is the, the outflow. The fruit is the outflow of our hearts. And so it is about perseverance. And if you are a believer, we just sung it. He will hold you fast. He will cause you to persevere. He will not let one of us be lost. He will, through his Holy Spirit, cause you to persevere. Right? So we shouldn't fret about whether or not we're actually saved or whether or not we're actually going to heaven. We have that assurance, but we should definitely fret about how we're living our lives and how the truth of the gospel is affecting our lives in light of that inevitable judgment. So the question isn't, is this passage teaching salvation by doing good things, but rather that this passage is spurring us on to all live lives faithfully persevering in the good things in light of God's sure and coming judgment. We will one day stand before the judgment seat of God and he will judge the quality of our lives or rewards. Now, I believe in my heart, and I say this with a lot of conviction in my own heart, I believe when we get there, we all stand before the Lord and our, and our lives are opened up before him and he judges us for our works. I believe there will be a profound sense of joy, of course, but I believe there will be also a profound sense of loss because I think we will all see what could have been. If I only killed that sin, if I only got more serious about becoming mature in the faith, if I only poured myself more into Christ, if I only gave him that part of my life that I refused to give him access to, all of this could have been mine. Now, I believe it'll be glorious and perfect and all that, but I believe, and I think it backs it up in 1 Corinthians when it talks about that day of judgment and other people will get in as though escaping the fire, right? I think we will feel that. I think we will see, man, there was all that more. That's God telling us now while we can live our lives for his glory. Where we can live our lives in full submission, where we can faithfully persevere in doing good instead of evil. And that has a lot to do with how we judge one another. So maybe I'll say the big idea this way. We persevere faithfully, and God judges perfectly. We persevere faithfully, and God judges perfectly. Again, that's not to say that we don't judge we are called to judge one another, but we will have to do it humbly, not hypocritically. God will judge perfectly. We are called to persevere faithfully. We patiently persevere in seeking to do good. We patiently persevere in seeking glory and honor and immortality. And what will be our reward? Eternal life. Eternal life with God in heaven, free of sin, sickness, death, and evil, and with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So for now when we're in the situation that we're called to make judgments over other brothers and sisters, again, we do so with humility, not hypocrisy. All the while, keeping an eye on the coming judgment of God, straight up, there are some things, some conflicts, church, we have to remember as much as it hurts. There are some hurts, conflicts, all of that, that will not be resolved in this life. That's what eternity is for. That's what heaven is for. But until then, we strive, we persist, we persevere faithfully to try and reconcile them. But if not, we rest in the truth that God will judge everyone inevitably and God will judge everyone accordingly. 
and perfectly. If you are here this morning and you've not submitted to Christ as Lord and Savior in the faith, you will face judgment for your sins. And that is the worst position that any human being could ever possibly be in. The scripture tells us it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so now is, today is the day of salvation. Not later, right? Today is the day of salvation. So I urge you to seriously consider that. And if you've not turned to Christ to put your faith in Jesus for salvation from God's judgment for your sin. But Highlands, church, Christians, how are we living today in light of the certainty of God's judgment? Are we continuing in sin, falsely thinking that God's silence on our sin means he doesn't care? Is showing contempt for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his patience? Paul makes that clear. That's exactly what we're doing. We're showing contempt for his riches of patience and kindness and forbearance. We need to faithfully persevere in doing good, church. Especially in the areas of judging others. Because why? One day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's where our lives are going. And when we live with that as the end in mind, that is a life lived to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your love. We thank you for your patience, Lord. For we know that there is not one person on the face of this earth that could ever stand before you because of our sin. In your unlimited grace and mercy, or unmerited maybe, Father, you are patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. Father, would you do that? Would you continue to call more people to you that they see, they know, they understand that one day there will be a judgment that will come upon us all and then it will be too late to repent. Cause them to repent now. Grant them repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But Father, for us as Christians, us as the church, us as people who then go from this place and be scattered into our neighborhoods and our families and our jobs and our schools and all of that, Lord. Father, that we would remember we are called to persevere in doing good. We are called to faithfully persevere. We have the assurance of knowing that we won't be judged for our sin, that heaven awaits us, Lord. But let us remember that we will be judged for what we did and what we knew and how we spent our lives. May we seek to maximize that blessing that we will have for all eternity right now while we can. And we pray all things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.